Today's lesson was recorded on February 15, 2024. And this is the second lesson in our series that we're kicking off through the Gospel of John. So we're just getting started, and the Gospel of John is utterly an amazing document that John has for us. So we hope you can join us as we go through this series on John and get to know the Gospel of John. Before we start today's lesson, which is on the path to God that John is laying out for us, just a couple logistical items. So a few weeks ago, we announced that Big Dream Ministries is now part of the Amazon Affiliate Program, and that you can directly support this ministry by shopping on Amazon through our affiliate link. And you can find that link at our website. And for all of you who've been shopping using that link, we thank you so much. We saw an immediate boost to the number of people using the link, and we just want to let you know that that's such a blessing and how much we appreciate your efforts. Now, we had mentioned previously that Amazon used to have a program for nonprofits. It was called Amazon Smile, and that was associated with the Amazon Foundation. And I know many of you used to use that Amazon Smile to support your own church or a school or a local ministry. But about a year ago, it was February of 2023, Amazon canceled that program. And so all of the nonprofits who were receiving donations from the Amazon Foundation found themselves without that steady stream of support. So if you're looking for an organization to support while you're doing your shopping on Amazon, just head over to our website, BigTreeTeaching.com, click on our Amazon portal link, and then save that link to your favorites. So there's already been a couple people who have let me know that they've added our link to their favorites to remind them to use our link when going to Amazon. But when you do, you'll be able to support this ministry while you're doing your regular shopping at Amazon. And again, we certainly appreciate all of your support. Now, the second thing to note is that we've been updating our website. And one of the pages that we recently completed is a series that we did back in 2020. It was during the pandemic. It was a series that we did on the seven churches that are found in the book of Revelation. And so I know a lot of people have interest in the book of Revelation, and particularly those seven cities. And in this series, we travel around to each of those cities that John pastored there in the first century in Asia Minor. And then as is our regular practice, we're going to look at those letters through the lens of that first century culture that existed there in Asia Minor and the history of each of those cities. I think you'll find that it's truly remarkable that when you understand the context of those cities and then how John weaves together that context along with verses and themes from the Old Testament, it just blows your mind how John is communicating to that audience. So, Make sure you check out that page. We'll include a link in the description section below. It'll take you right to it. Okay, so on to the lesson at hand for today. John is showing us a path to union with God through Christ. And we want to make sure that we don't miss the path that he has in his letter. So enjoy today's lesson. So we're beginning a series that's going to be taking us on a journey through the Gospel of John. And we'll be getting into the meat of the Gospel soon, but right now what we're doing is we're just setting the stage and we're talking about John as a Jewish mystic, and then the Gospel itself as a what we would categorize as a mystical writing. And this isn't anything new. Throughout church history, John has been recognized as a mystical book. Today, we might use a term like high Christology, but that's, that's much later. But early church fathers, who were still using the Greek word mysterion, they looked at John as a mystical book. So one of the early church fathers, who was a theologian from Alexandria, Egypt, his name is Origen. He lived at the latter half of the second century into the third century. And he, he refers to John as a mystical gospel or a spiritual gospel. And so what we have today is that 
the word mystical or mystery, well, sometimes it sends us off into thinking the absolute worst things, like some crazy cult leader. But there's actually a category for mystic and mystical. And one of the one of the character traits of the authentic mystics is humility. They do not reckon themselves as a sort of god, which many people throughout all of time in religion, we get all kinds of crazy things where people begin to think they're god. That can happen anywhere. An authentic mystic begins in humility. They recognize they're not god. They want to be in union with god. So, part of my goal here is to demystify the category of mysticism. Because when we can understand the category of mysticism, well, you'll begin to see it all over the New Testament. It's clearly in John. You find it in Paul. Some of the the more difficult statements of Paul are because he's talking about something that's mystical. In fact, I mean, look at how many times Paul uses the word mystery. And then even in some of the things that Jesus says, would be considered to be on the mystical level. So, today's lesson, we're going to continue looking uh, at some of the structure that John has built into his gospel. So, most people read John, they don't even think about the fact that there's structure built into the text. But once you see the structure, once you know it's there, then it's going to come to the surface. And you're going to read John in a different way. You're going to read John better. Because once you know those structures, you know where you're at in the text. You know what John is pointing you to. So it's like watching a movie the second or third time around. You see all the things in the movie that you didn't see the first time. And that's what I want to encourage you to do is raise your familiarity with John itself, but also know all the underlying structures, and that will make you, that'll help you get uh, more familiar with John. And so today's lesson then is that John is going to put in his gospel a path. There's a book I'll show you in a minute. It's called The Mystical Way. And so the mystic is going to have a path. It's going to bring you into unity with God or unity with Christ in this case. And so this is what John is showing to his community. Now we then, we kept the book and we get to benefit from his writing as well. But when he initially writes to his community, he's laying out this path that's going to lead them to God and for the people who come after him to help them be led down a path to God. So this painting we see in the background here, this one is called, this is Martonio Altamante, and this is called Sponsa Christi, which means the Bride of Christ. Okay, the Bride of Christ. That is a mystical idea that's all over the New Testament. And this is one of the primary metaphors used in the Bible that describes not only our the relationship of the church to Christ, the church is the bride of Christ, or we are the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. But this metaphor of marriage is found throughout the entire Bible. So In the Old Testament, God is the husband. Mount Sinai was a marriage, and you have a marriage covenant. And God spread his shawl in a cloud over the nation of Israel and took them into marriage. And then you find that metaphor throughout describing Israel, the virgin bride, has now cheated on her husband. That's the metaphor throughout the prophets. And so even in Isaiah, you find something like this where it says, For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name. You see there, everybody saw this metaphor of a marriage. That obviously goes right into our New Testament. Because we would say then, who is the bridegroom? Well, that's Jesus. Now, what's going on here is they recognize the metaphor of a marriage the metaphor of a marriage that's going to be, it's, it's a mysterious union of Christ and the church. And the metaphor to describe this mysterious union is just like a husband and wife coming together. Now, 
It's a limited union, of course, while we're still here, embodied on the earth. But you reach the fullness of consummation in the afterlife, in heaven. And so I'll show you some examples later from the New Testament that talk about this mystical union as a marriage. And so much of the language in our New Testament is inside of that marriage metaphor. If you know that, then you can see what they're talking about. All right, so for a quick review from last week, we're introducing the idea that John is a mystic, and in his day, well, he's a Jewish mystic in his day, and that his gospel was seen as a mystical book. I mentioned Origen from the um, third century, and he calls it a mystical gospel or a spiritual gospel. You know, the early church fathers, they used that word mysterion that we find in the New Testament, and they recognized that the Bible not only had a literal meaning at the surface, but there also a deeper spiritual meaning, and that that's the mysterion, that we can go deeper into it, and when it begins to be revealed to us, because God is a God who, it's not keeping a mystery like you can never know, it's something that has to be revealed, and when it is revealed, then we're able to have new spiritual eyes to read the Bible. We see things we didn't see before. I'll review Mysterion in a, in a few minutes, but my point is, is for a significant portion of the life of the church, John was recognized as a mystical gospel. And if you take time and you look at all of the Christian mystics that have written throughout the past 2,000 years, John is a, uh, one of the central books. So this is a piece that we're generally missing. If you just go to a regular mainline church on Sunday, we're generally missing the category of mystic. And then why would we say something like, you know, John's a Jewish mystic and the book is a mystical book? And that's what I want to show is show you the category of mystical. But if you know that category, then you, you can look at John and say, oh, I know exactly what they're talking about. So this is part of my mission. We're going to try to take some of the mystery out of the mystical. And this whole series is simply to be, uh, is intended to be a path for an introduction to the topic but also to help you see John with new eyes, to have new insight into the structure of John, what he's writing, and how he's leading you down this path. And it really, you'll understand John on a significantly deeper level than you may today. Now, that happens anytime that you intently read Scripture, but if you also know all the structures and how he's working that gospel, then it really will help you read it. So this is what week one was about. That was just an introduction to the category of the mystical. So one thing we noted last week is that within mystical thought, there are a number of topics that show up over and over and over and over. So for instance, light versus darkness, and we find that all over the Gospel of John. You have a deep interest in the heavenly veil. We see this throughout the Bible where it's like the heavenly veil is pulled back and we're given a view into the heavens, into the reality that exists that we can't see. So, for instance, Genesis 28, it's Jacob's ladder. The heavens are opened. There's a ladder with the angels ascending and descending, and the Lord is standing there. And that, of course, is one of them where you see that veil pulled open. And we noted last week that John starts his gospel in chapter 1 with a mention of this Jacob's ladder. There's a reliance in John on Ezekiel and the visions that he has. We talked last week about Daniel and the Son of Man. Once again, Daniel looking into the heavens. He sees the heavenly throne room. And it says, one like the Son of Man, which is the title John's going to, or I'm sorry, Jesus is going to be using in John. And it's all about authority and glory and sovereign power, and the nations of the world are going to worship him. And then it's an everlasting kingdom. And oh, by the way, we mentioned that the phrase son of man is 12 times in the book of John, and 12 is a number of governance. So what is the governing force of the universe? It's the Christ. It's the son of man. It's Jesus in the resurrected state, but he's taken on flesh to be with us now. Um, we noted last week that the, the mystics love paradox because it's in paradox you find God in a deeper way. 
so you don't shy away from paradox. And of course, John is going to have a number of paradoxes that he, he does nothing to try to help you with them, simply leaves them there. As we go through the text, we'll point out where these paradoxes show up. And then finally, uh, creation or continuous creation that somehow, you know, we use the phrase, we're born again. Well, how does that work? It's almost like creation is happening all over again. And John's gospel is structured just like creation. That's part of the theme. And what he's saying is, in Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, there's a new beginning for the entire cosmos. So we saw last week that he has seven signs, just like the seven days of creation. He starts his gospel within the beginning. He ends with a couple of events, including Mary, uh, Mary at the tomb on the first day of the week, as if now there's a new creation and everything's starting off. So we did that last week. Then we talked about the New Testament, and there's a Greek word, mysterion. And that's where, of course, where we get our words mystical and mystery and all of that. And mysterion means something hidden, a secret. And the idea is that there's an, in, an initiation is necessary, and that's not some initiation into a secret cult for Christianity, but you certainly could argue, well, when one becomes a, a Christian, a brand new Christian, I don't understand anything. I know when I became a Christian, I was uh, 32 years old, and I knew I had a God experience. I knew I had that, and I knew I was supposed to go to church. God was at least pointing me in the right direction, but I had no idea. I kept thinking, how does Jesus fit into all of this? I don't understand any of that. They keep talking about this Trinity stuff. I mean, of course, I'd heard it because I grew up in America, but I didn't understand it. No, it takes some initiation. You have to learn. And so you start taking classes, and the next thing you know, you're like, oh, I'm learning about this. Now I see something deeper that I couldn't see before. So Mysterion is not something unknowable. Rather, it's that it can only be known through revelation. You become a Christian and you begin to learn God reveals things in ways that you couldn't see before, right? You go ask someone who's not a Christian, you know, say, hey, look out your window and find the Trinity. They can't find that. They don't see that with their, their normal senses don't pick it up. But as we grow and we are initiated into the mysteries of the Christ, then things are revealed to us in ways that they weren't before. That's part of their process. Well, let's talk about the sacraments, because we did this last week too. And we noted the sacraments, for there was early church, those are mysterious practices. And they're mysterious practices that lead you into a deeper relationship with Christ. Because when we look at that word sacrament, what does the word sacrament, which is Latin, by the way, what does the word sacrament mean? It means mystery. So if we look up the definition of sacrament, it says a church Latin loan translation of the Greek word mysterion, a mystery. There we go. So what do you participate in each week at church? You are participating in the mysteries. If you take communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist, whatever you call it, you're participating in a mystery, bringing you closer to the Christ. Okay, now, in Roman times, if you're looking in just a secular aspect, um, they used it as an oath. It's an oath of obedience or fidelity that the soldiers took to the king. Now, that's interesting because Jesus is the king. Okay, now, by the third century, it was used in church Latin as a mystery, a sacrament, something to be kept sacred, a gospel revelation. So, you could say it's a solemn religious ceremony enjoined by Christ. That's the mystery. When you take the Eucharist or when you have the Lord's Supper, it is in some mysterious way Christ is joining you in that meal. Uh, another way to look at it is if he becomes the body of that, that bread becomes his body, the wine or the grape juice becomes his blood, then you're infusing yourself with the spirit of the Christ, Christ in me. Something mysterious is happening when we engage in these sacraments. Now, it goes on. 
um, arcane knowledge, a secret, a mystery, divine. This is all about sacrament. By the 14th century, a solemn oath, a pledge, a covenant, a ceremony accompanying the taking of an oath or a pledge. Now think about that. You enter a covenant relationship with God through the new covenant, and the ratifying sacrifice of the new covenant is the blood of Jesus. That's how you ratify a, a covenant. And we enter into that. So communion, the Lord's Supper, do this in remembrance of me. And what you're saying once again is I'm going to renew my pledge to the covenant. I'm going to renew my relationship with you, Jesus, as king. So there's all kinds of mysteries in this. And there's no doubt that part of that covenant making or, or reaffirming our oath to the king is even inside of our, our own, whether we think about that or not when we're taking the sacraments. So we engage in mysteries all the time. We don't even know it. It's so mysterious. We're not even aware that we're doing it, but we've normalized them, right? We become so familiar. We don't talk about them as the mystery or what's happening. They become mundane. You know, people are hungry. And if we bring back some of that mystical and allow people to discover it for themselves, and you discover it internally, this is what's driving you towards the union. Now, I want to talk about a little bit about mystery, the idea of mystery and sacrament. Now, if we just look at the idea of mystery, because mystery is something that is in some way unknowable, what's happening. And we look at sacraments. There's a great quote. It comes from an organization. It's called the First Fruits of Zion. And what happens within Christianity is our tendency to divide our divisions within Christianity. They tend to occur at points that are actually mysteries. We forget that they're mysteries. We fail to remember that they're mysteries. We think we've solved the mystery, and we haven't. And then they leave us divided because they're mysteries. And so we often divide over things like Eucharist or baptism, which are mysteries. So this is what they say. It says, when we attempt to take possession of the secret things of the Lord, see, it says in Deuteronomy that there are secret things of the Lord. God reveals some things to us, but he doesn't reveal everything to us. When we attempt to take possession of those secret things, we find that they slip through our hands. We don't have the agency to hold on to that divine secret. They slip through our hands and they leave us fractured and divided. Why? Well, there's no forum for unity. When unity depends on defining the indefinable. And this is one thing about the mystics that I really love is they are always reminding themselves about the mysterious things of God and that they can't define them. It takes great humility to use the phrase, I don't know, because it's a mystery. So we divide on baptism. That's a huge one within the church to, that divides us. We divide on Eucharist or Lord's Supper, whatever you prefer. You know, the great schism, east and west, the church has been divided since 1054. The great schism of the church between the east and the west, in, in, in part, it's a disagreement over the Eucharist. What type of bread? Or another one is about the Trinity, because the Trinity itself is a mystery. Again, you can't look out the window and say, where's the Trinity? Let me put it into a spreadsheet and see. Hit the, you hit the equation, you get, you get Trinity, right? We, we understand it sufficiently, but we can't understand it in totality. And so we divide on things. And there are still divisions today about the Trinity. One of those, filioque. Filioque was a phrase that was added to the Nicene Creed. And it was added by the Latin-speaking Catholic Church. And it basically means that the Holy Spirit emanates not just from the Father, but from the Son. Now, you might say, big deal. Well, that caused the church to divide. Because who are you to add one word to our Nicene Creed? Okay, so you get the point. Jesus 
implores us to get along, to forgive one another. And what we do is we turn that on its head and we divide. We say, we're right, they're wrong. It's all about us. So we have to remember that there's mysteries. We're not always going to know the answer. Okay, now, that, lead, that was week one. That was all week one. What we're going to do in week two is we're going to talk about the path. Um, it could be called the mystical way or the mystical path. John is going to set before us a path that's going to lead to us achieving union with God. Okay. So very briefly, because we'll talk through this in a minute, you start with some type of uh, initial enlightenment. It's the initial enlightenment. It's not full enlightenment, but it's enough. Like I said, when I became a Christian, I knew what direction I had to go in. I didn't know why. I couldn't tell you anything about it, but I knew that was where I had to go. So I became enlightened enough to recognize that God was a reality and that Jesus had something to do with it, but I, I couldn't explain it. Okay, so in chapter one, that's what we see is the, there are Jewish disciples who are recognizing that Jesus is the one that Moses taught about. Then you go on to baptism. That's step two. And baptism, not only is chapter three about baptism, but we also have about the um, spiritual birth from above, to be born again. And so now we have a sacrament. It's a mystery. The baptism is a type of rebirth, and we're also born from above. So we have spiritual regeneration. Then John goes on, there's another sacrament. That's the Eucharist, Lord's Supper. That's in chapter 6. Okay? Then we have two chapters, chapter 7 and 8, which is the process of enlightenment. And it's important that it's, it's a process. This is a lifelong process of every step of the way, when we can, to see God more clearly. And that's chapters 7 and 8. Then that enlightenment it brings us to new life. Chapter 11, that's the chapter that Jesus raises Lazarus from the ground. And ultimately, what John is pointing us to is what the mystics are looking to achieve, union with God. Okay? Now, this is his path. And he ends with that union with God. And that's, uh, that's a mystical idea. Okay. So, the core, if we can, if we can talk about the core of mystical teaching, and this is exactly where John is leading us, the core is some kind of inner transformation. So the mystic just doesn't want to have a mystical experience, right? Or to know secret knowledge like the Gnostics, right? You had to have secret knowledge in order to get into heaven. No, that's not the point. The point is, is that you engage in the transformational power of God. It's about inner transformation. And that's the goal. And that transformation occurs through the mystical union with the presence of God. Okay? And this is exactly what the New Testament is telling us to do. This is what Paul's getting at. So a quote like this from Romans. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That there's an engagement in the mysteries that's going to transform you and renew your mind. I don't think that's controversial at all. And then another one right here, this is 2 Corinthians 3.8. Paul writes, And we with unveiled faces, when we behold the glory of the Lord, what's happening? We're being transformed into the same image. Now, what's the image? Well, it's the image of the Lord, the image of God. From one degree of glory to another, that means it's a process, right? It's an increasing process as we transform, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And the main point there is, you should be being transformed. Are you being transformed? And if the answer is no, then you're not on the path. Now, it doesn't mean you're not saved. It's not the point. The point is, you're not walking the path. And that path, is inner transformation. What's the goal? It's this union with God. We'll talk about more of this in a minute. The union with Christ. To abide in Christ. Let me give you one more definition to help with this category of, of mysticism, or the mystics, right? This is again from 
Uh, I quoted from this book last week. Uh, It's called The Essential Writings of Christian Mysticism by Bernard McGinn. And he says, look, the process within mysticism is that direct and transformative presence of God. What are the practices that you use, which are supposed to be like the Eucharist, that leads you into that transformative presence, right? And it all includes, it's going to be not only the preparation for, it's the consciousness of, meaning you're aware of it, and then the transformative effect of the experience itself. And so the mystical life is really a process or a journey to God. And it's not just a moment. It's not a moment or a brief state where you're in mystical union. It's the process of trying to ever increasingly get closer to God. So, a little bit. I hope that helps. Now, in that, they come up with, then, some kind of mystical path or mystical way. And this is exactly what John is doing. He wants to leave something for his community, not only telling the story of Jesus and the miracles that he did and the words that came from his his mouth, but John puts it into a structure that is much more about a path or a way that leads you into that mystical union. Now, this is an excellent book. It's called The Mystical Way in the Fourth Gospel, uh, William Countryman. Really good book. It's well worth it. It'll help you with the structure of John. And so, the mystical way or the path is a system or a general path towards that mystical union with God. That's what John's going to be laying out for us. Now, mystical union, what does that mean? Because that can be confusing, okay? And we don't want you confused. We want you to understand the category of mysticism. It was called Unio Mystica. Now, that comes around about the 13th century. So that's not something that goes back to Jesus. But mystical union has always been there. And some people think, oh, you're trying to be completely absorbed into God. Nope, that's not the point. Or you're thinking you want to become a God. Nope, that's not the point either. Right? As I mentioned, primary characteristic of a mystic is humility. And the mystics, at least the mature mystics, let's put it that way, you can get an immature mystic, but the mature mystic, they recognize that this is not absorption or that somehow they become God. They're very clear that they see themselves as distinct from God, but rather it's an increasing closeness to God or a closeness to the presence of God. So instead of mystical union, Bernard McGinn speaks presence of God. And what happens is, in that closeness, when you go through the practices, the mystical way, and you're moving towards that closeness, it naturally transforms you. Now, the couple verses that they would focus on, the first one is 1 Corinthians 6.17. It says, But the one united with the Lord is one in spirit with him. Look at those words, united with the Lord. Some English says joined, but it's the idea of being united with the Lord. Okay? That's a mystical union. And you become, in some weird way, one spirit with him. Your spirit becomes just like the image it was supposed to be. Okay, that's one. Another one is from John. This is another one that they focus on. John 17.21. And this is Jesus' prayer. That they may all be one. Okay? And he says, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. That's that mystical union of being abiding in Christ, that you're connected. God's the vine dresser. Jesus is the true vine. And we're the branch that needs to be connected deeply to the vine so that we can live and it's a mystical union. So those are two verses that the the mystics point up. And the idea is, again, I mentioned this, the image that they use for mystical union is the closeness of a husband and wife in marriage. And that's why you get this painting right here. And so the closeness 
to Christ. It's as intimate as a husband and wife coming together. One other part of the Bible that the mystics love is the Song of Solomon, or sometimes called the Song of Songs, because it's a love story. And the mystics, even the rabbis, they see it as a love story between the soul and God, or the soul and Christ, and how the soul longs for her husband, because soul in both Hebrew and Greek is a feminine word. How the soul longs to be in connection with the living God. And that is the primary metaphor. So if you look at a verse like in Revelation, Revelation 21.2, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. What did it look like? Made ready like a bride adorned for her husband. This is what's going to happen. It's in heaven. It's the consummation of the marriage. And then a little bit further down in Revelation 21, come here, the angel says, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Paul also talks about how we were bought with a price and that we are the bride of Christ. And this is such a powerful image to think about the closeness that God desires with us. And what's cool is this was a few years ago. This was right in time for the Festival of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. And what you see on the picture in the middle there is a giant bride's dress. The headline says, what's the huge white bridal dress flying over the Tower of David? Because even within Judaism, the Messiah is going to come back as the bridegroom. This piece of art is called the betrothal. And you can see this is October 2nd, 2015. That's the time of tabernacles. So even the Jewish people today are awaiting their bridegroom. And Jesus tells the parable of the bridesmaids, right? Are you going to be prepared when the bridegroom comes, when he comes to get his bride? That's a mystical union. Now, let me say two things about this. One, you can see the metaphor of intimacy of marriage, how close God wants to dwell with his people. And Jesus, you know, when he makes the announcement that the kingdom of God is near, the Hebrew word that would be used there can be used for the intimate relations between a husband and wife. And so Jesus is saying, the kingdom is near. You can't get much nearer than that. Jesus also says that the kingdom is within you. Right? And so God wants to draw even that close to us. Now, when? Well, of course, eventually in heaven. But the point that Jesus is making is that the kingdom is available. The intimacy with God is available right now. You start right now. You can find the peace of God right now in this world. And you, by doing that, you bring the kingdom to earth. And that has a ripple effect out to all the people around you. So, it's not just, hey, I'll wait one day and then meet my bridegroom in heaven. No, I want to meet him right now. Okay, now the second piece, and this is important, this is not an obligation. God does not force you to want to be close to him. If he was a despotic leader, he would force you into being close to him. It's just like a marriage. You don't force the other person into the marriage and demand that they love you and expect authentic love. It's like a marriage based on a husband and a wife coming together who love each other, who desire to be with each other. And the mystics, in this sense, they are in love with God. They don't just love God. They are in love with God. They have a strong desire to grow ever closer to God. It's not out of guilt. It's not out of obligation, but simply out of love for God. And when you begin moving toward God, you get closer to God. The transformation is so remarkable. You see God in a new way. You want everyone else to know about it too. It's, it's all out of love. It's a full-on relationship of love. Your desire to get closer and closer and closer to God. It's not about wanting to become a God. That's a cult leader. It's the desire to be closer to God, to be closer to the reality of God. This is not an obligation. It's fully done out of love. But what does God want more than anything? He wants you to do it out of love, not because you fear him, not because you think it's an obligation. And in this way, 
This is how you know it's authentic, right? If you were to meet someone who said, well, I'm a mystic, and you want to test their authenticity, well, then you look at the fruit of that. Are they humble and in love with God and want other people to be in love with God too? Or are they seeking power and money? So that's how you test whether this is authentic or not. Now, the mystical way then, that leads us to this mystical way. This is a path that John's going to lay out in his gospel. It's going to help his believers grow closer to God. Okay? And what John does, he's going to show us the path. What he doesn't indicate to us are what what are the daily practices. He's not telling us what to do on a day-to-day basis. The community would have known that. They would have known all the practices that were all around them from the different religions and within Judaism. And so they don't, John doesn't need to write that stuff. But I'll give you an example. One example comes from Jesus himself. We read that he spends a lot of time in solitude. That's a spiritual discipline to be in solitude, to be in prayer, to practice silence. And you see often, In the gospel, Jesus gets up early in the morning and he goes off to pray alone. That's his time to get close to God, right? So he's always removing himself. And that would have likely included contemplation or meditation on a certain Bible verse, right? So the Jews had a weekly Torah portion that they would study. And so maybe perhaps through meditation of that Torah portion, you begin to realize and have awareness of God. So, how does it start? There's initial enlightenment. This is chapter 1. So, John begins with John the Baptist and then some of the disciples. They're recognizing who Jesus is. They don't know the totality of everything they're seeing, but they're saying, Aha, I think we've met the one that Moses taught about or wrote about in the law. So, right off the bat, We see that initial spark of enlightenment. You're moving in the right direction. Okay? Everybody's on their journey, right? And that first step is to at least have some notion of Jesus, who he is, in a way that's going to cause you to follow him. Okay? But you still have more to go. Then, the sacraments, uh, those are the mysteries. They initiate us into the Christ. And baptism, not only, um, I mean, there's so many different meanings, again, to what baptism, what it's about, but it is some form of rebirth. Now, you could also say it's a washing away of sins. No, No doubt people saw that in it. It's a renewal, a regeneration. But in chapter three, he includes both baptism and then the conversation with Nicodemus. And that's about birth from above, being reborn by the power of the Spirit. And so you'll notice how the Bible makes a connection between baptism and the Holy Spirit. You find that in the book of Acts. Same thing here in John. Okay, then you go to the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, chapter 6. Now what's interesting, and all scholars will point this out about John, is he does not tell us about Jesus' words at the Last Supper, the Passover meal, where he says, do this in remembrance of me. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke. Not John. John puts the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, all in chapter 6, and it's an interesting chapter, sometimes difficult for people, but the holiday setting of the chapter is the Passover. He talks about manna from heaven. He talks about being the bread of the world. Then he talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And when we talk about um, this chapter, But also, when we talk about time and place, John's writing from the city of Ephesus. And you have to know something about the religions of the people who's surrounding in in that area. And one of them was, was the god Dionysus. Dionysus, however you say it, tomato, tomato. It was a very popular religion in that area. Huge temple to Dionysus and a theater up in Pergamum. And at the festival for Dionysus, you ingest his meat, that would be a bowl that was sacrificed, you drink his blood, which is also wine, serves as his blood. Dionysus is a god of party, so the more wine you ingest, 
The more you become like the God of party, it infuses in you and you become like the God. And so a lot of people would have already had this idea in their mind when Jesus is talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood. If you're a Greek living in Ephesus, you're not like, oh, I've never heard of that before. You're saying, that's Dionysus. So we got to remember that they're dealing with all the pagan religions that surround them, and John's going to engage those in a way to say, no, no, no. Don't eat and drink that meat and blood. You want to be eating and drinking the blood of Jesus. So next, you have then a process of enlightenment. It's more enlightenment. And this is really one of my favorites. It takes place in chapter 7 and 8. And what's cool about this is it's the Festival of Tabernacles. John mentions so many of the holidays. And the Festival of Tabernacles had developed by the first century. They're celebrating God's light, like the pillar of light who led them in the wilderness. And they built these huge candelabras in the temple courts, and they would light up the city of Jerusalem. And it's at this moment, during this festival, that Jesus is going to declare that he's the light of the world. And then the very next thing he does, using water from the pool of Siloam, and that's also uh, integrated into the Festival of Tabernacles, he's going to use that water and he's going to give light to a blind man. So it's like he declares it at the holiday that is light. Then he brings light to the blind man. And it's a very poignant way of saying, this is who I am. Now, even, even we who are not born blind read that and say, aha, that was once me. I was blind, but now I see. And so we can connect with that because spiritual enlightenment is really what he's talking about. Okay, it's that process. Now, it's a process of enlightenment, so it's going to take time. And it's seeing the reality of who Jesus is, the nature of reality, and through that process of enlightenment, through seeing the nature of reality, we gain new life. So that, John tells us at the end of the, the gospel, we come to know Jesus so that we will have life in him. Okay, and in chapter 11, what happens? Lazarus dies and he's brought back to life. Okay? And then finally, union with God. This is his prayer in the garden. Now, again, I mentioned this earlier. You don't see here, John's, he's giving you the basic path, but that process of enlightenment is going to take you, you know, your whole life. Well, what are you doing in that time? Is it simply going to church every Sunday? Or are you going to have to do more to raise that enlightenment? so that you see Jesus in a new way. And that, that would be, I mean, Jesus says things like, when you fast, not if you fast, when you fast. Oh, when do I fast? Okay, well, that's not really much of a practice. Now, there are some churches that do fasting, but maybe that's a good idea. Maybe we should start practicing fasting. You know, you have things like contemplation or meditation or meditating on scripture or fasting or solitude or silence. And these are practices, they've been around for thousands and thousands of years. And you find them with Jesus. And unfortunately, in our modern age, we ignore a lot of them. And for any one of you, you could say, you know what? I'm going to start a weekly fast. And then I'm going to spend more time with God that day. Or you know what? I'm going to go do a silent retreat. Not where I'm reading or journaling or walking where I'm simply silent, where you allow your mind, all the chatter that goes on in your mind to calm down in the silence and solitude. So, because when you do, God will fill the space that you've created. That's part of the idea of a Sabbath. Are you taking the time off? Are you shutting off the noise of the world? Are you going to be alone so that God can fill the space of all the stuff that we fill our space, our, our, our lives with. Because when you give God an opportunity to fill that space, he will fill it. And then you become enlightened. And then you want to spend more time with God because he's your husband. So you have to have a date night every single week. That's the metaphor. So, okay, this is the path. John's going to lay that out for us. That's called the mystical way or the mystical path. And it's his path to finding union with God.
All right, so hopefully this helps a little bit more about the mystics, also about the structure of John. So not only do you have the seven signs, but you have the mystical path. Now when you read through John, you've got some markers along the way that are going to help you see what John is doing. Okay, and then God can reveal over time to you some of the deeper meaning that's going on. Now, what you might have to do, you can read John if you want to follow that path, but you might have to add some of those spiritual practices. Again, it's pretty easy to do a fast. Just don't eat food, right? Maybe add a little more prayer time. Find a way to carve out a, a spiritual retreat and some silence. So all of this helps you down the path of enlightenment. So the next lesson is going to be on what are called the four senses of reading scripture. There's four senses that the Jews came up with. There's four senses that the Christians came up with. In fact, they used to structure every sermon, so every Sunday sermon, based on these four senses, and then explicate the text. So we'll talk about those four and how one of the things you want to do is try to read at all four levels. You want to try to get as deep as possible. So you're not just reading at a literal level, just like the blind man in, in John chapter 8 is healed. And all of us can say, oh, wait, I was blind too once. Well, it's like, well, you just left the literal. So yes, it's a literal story of Jesus doing a miracle, but it also applies to you spiritually. And we can all see that. So that's what we want to be able to do. It gives depth to the text. You see, you read scripture on a deeper level, and you see how important scripture is in God's kingdom. That'll be next week. Get on that path. Start moving down the path. God will then give you direction on which way to go, which spiritual disciplines uh, will help you because everybody is a little bit different. But we want to be on that path. We want to be moving down that path to union with God.